All right, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're reading from the Red uh, Pew Bible, it should be on page 887. Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll start today. Let me pray for us as we go uh, as we go before God's word. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we pray for a word. We ask God that you would speak, that you would take the printed words on these pages and that you would bring them to life in our hearts. Lord, that you would stir up in us Grief over our sin, but even more so joy over what Jesus has done. Joy over the fact that we, when forgiven of Jesus, have no more need of endless sacrifices, of endless religious ritual, but we come into the throne room of grace boldly with meekness. So, Lord, would you transport us even now into that heavenly throne room and speak to us words that will give us life instead of death. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, that is, after this wedding in Cana of Galilee, after this miracle where Jesus takes, as one, uh, as one of our students put it on Wednesday night, after Jesus takes old dirty water and turns it into good full wine, the good stuff, after Jesus shows us that he is, he is the fullness of God's riches come to cleanse his people, after this... Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus doesn't play very nicely. 
Jesus doesn't do what, uh, what we expect him to do. And so we have this very, uh, this very curious scene where we see Jesus, meek and mild, uh, make a whip and start driving not just animals, but even people out of the temple. What in the world is this all, all about? And here's what I hope we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus actually himself is the true temple where God meets man. And he's the one who flings open the doors of heavenly joy. And maybe you read that and you think, well, how in the world do we get from Jesus hitting people with a whip to the doors of heavenly joy? Let's hope we get there. Um, But in order to understand what Jesus does, the first thing we need to understand is what exactly a temple is for. Why in the world? Because we're not, we're not used to temples in this part of the world. I mean, we have church houses, but we don't, we don't understand temples, right? It's just not a part of our common experience. And so to understand what Jesus is doing, first we have to understand why in the world Israel had a temple in the first place. And in short, here's the, ample, here's the answer. The temple is where you met God, Okay. So if you want to imagine, imagine two different spheres, okay? And over here is God's space, and over here is man's space, all right? A temple is where those two spheres overlap one another. The temple is where, on earth, a human being could meet with God, right? Could experience the the joy of God's presence. That's what a temple was for, And what you notice when you read the Bible is from the very beginning, beginning with Adam, because that's what Eden is, right? The Garden of Eden is actually this this garden temple. And from the very beginning, what what we are supposed to do is take that temple, that place of meeting with God, and expand it to cover the entire world, right? We, we, We just sang that the earth would be full of God's glory, well, that's what, that's what it was supposed to be like in Genesis, right? That's what, it's, that's what Adam and Eve and all of us that follow them, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're in the business of filling the earth with God's glory. And the way that happens, at least in the Old Testament, is through a temple. But if you don't know the story, right, Adam and Eve rebel. They choose to reject God's glory and worship themselves, right? They want to fill the earth with their own glory, And so what you see happen from that point forward is when God calls people like Noah and people like Abraham and people like Jacob, they actually set up these little sanctuaries, these little worship places, these little places of communion between them and God. And the greatest expressions of that in the Old Testament are Moses' tabernacle in Exodus and Solomon's temple in 2 Samuel. I should know that. Right? And here's what, ta- here's what happens, right? God tells Moses, this is, what, this is what the tabernacle, this little mobile temple, it's, a, it's, just, it's basically a big tent. It's a temple you take with you, okay? And when God gives instructions to Moses on how to build it, they build it, they do it exactly like God tells them to, and as soon as it's open for business, God's glory comes down on the tabernacle and it fills it up with this fiery smoke. And the same exact thing happens when Solomon builds his temple. He builds it to the exact specifications that God tells him to. They make all the right sacrifices. And God comes in and he actually moves into the temple, right? He moves into his house. And when he moves into his house, his glory actually chases all the priests out. 
that there's so much smoke in the temple. The temple is so full of God's glory that even the people who work the house can't stay inside. That's what happens when God moves in. And that's what a temple is, right? It's God's house where his glory can be seen. But there's one more thing. Sacrifice. Because after the fall, right, you know, before, with, with Adam and Eve, God's space and man's space overlapped. Those two spheres overlapped one another perfectly. But after the rebellion, after the fall, those two spaces are pulled apart. And the only way for a human, the only way for man, woman, boy, or girl to enter back into God's presence, enter back into God's space, is through sacrifice. Because for, for sinful human beings, God's presence is actually dangerous. God himself, believe it or not, God himself is actually dangerous. Right? God is dangerous like, like lightning is dangerous. God is dangerous like fire is dangerous. God is dangerous like the sun is dangerous. Right now in our house, um, we, get, we get lots of questions Lots of why questions. Uh, why did you tell me to do that? Why do I have to clean up right now? But most of those why questions are, why does the world work the way that it does? And all it took was one good thunderstorm this summer before all of a sudden we notice lightning and thunder and are terrified. And we ask questions like, Dad, why did God make lightning if it kills people? And, w- and the way that I respond to that is, I don't know if it's the right answer, but I say, but God, God doesn't make lightning to kill people. God just makes lightning. It just so happens that if you get hit with that lightning, uh, it's going to hurt or you're going to die. And if you think about it, there are things all over the creation. There are things all over the universe that are beautiful and that are necessary and that serve a purpose. And they're, and they're wonderful, but at the same time, they, they could kill you. Right? Think about, think about the sun. We could not live apart from it. If, we, if, our, if our earth were any further from the sun, we would freeze. Right? And, if we, and without the sun, of course, we would be in total darkness. Trees wouldn't grow. Plants wouldn't grow. We wouldn't thrive. We would perish. We must have the light of the sun. And we must have the heat of the sun. But at the same time, you can't really jump on a space shuttle and go take a tour of the sun. Because it's light and it's heat in the right proximity would burn you to the crisp, right? You would, cease, you would just cease to exist. Every matter, every bit of, every atom in your, uh, in your body would, would burn away. And that's, and that's what God's presence is like, particularly the sinful human beings. And so in order to enter into God's dangerous beauty, you have to have... Sacrifices. In fact, do you know who provides the system of sacrifice? God does. He's the one who sets the terms. He's the one who says in the Old Testament, listen, if you're going to come and worship me, which you must, which you have to for your own good, here's, here's how you have to come to me. Here's the system that I'm going to set up for you to enter into my presence. And so he sets up this system of sacrifices so that when you come to the temple and sacrifice your animals, you actually symbolically place your sin on that animal. And what your sin would do to that animal, as symbolized in the whole ritual, is it would kill it. 
and you, as a result, have its blood on you. And you take the blood of that animal and it cleanses you so that you can enter into God's presence. All that is what's going on at the temple all the time. That is what happens at God's house. And we need to visit God's house, his temple, like we need the sun to survive each day. And God delights in that. God wants our worship. He likes having us come to visit. Um, But we have to take the proper steps in order to do that or we'll be swallowed up by the very beauty that we seek to behold. And that's what happens at the temple. So Jesus shows up. This is, uh, this is the Passover. There are lots of Jewish festivals. The Passover was the main one. And so what would happen when a, when a festival like the Passover happened is people from all over the country would, would come to Jerusalem. They'd make a pilgrimage. Think of it like going to your grandparents' house for Christmas. Okay? If your grandparents live at a great distance from you, um, you make kind of one big trip a year for the holiday. Uh, we have friends that they live in Florida and their parents live in um, Michigan, right? They live, they live far north, and so they just make one trip. If they make a trip in the year, it's going to be that trip. They make a pilgrimage, right, to visit. And so that, that's, how, that's, that's what the Jewish festivals were like, that people from all over the parts of the country would come to Jerusalem to worship. And the most important festival, it still is the most important, was the Passover. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. But when he gets into the temple, he sees something that makes him angry. That's right. Jesus gets angry. You remember that whole dangerous beauty thing? Whatever your image of Jesus is, whatever conception you have of Jesus this morning, make sure that there's room in it for anger. Now, not, not, the temp, not my kind of anger, right? Not temper flaring because I didn't get to do what I wanted to do or someone got in my way. That's my anger. No, Jesus' anger is different. Jesus is angry. Jesus gets angry with good reason. What makes Jesus angry, it's not that people are buying and selling animals. And it's not that there are money changers there. In fact, because people had to come from a great distance to worship, they needed sacrifices. They couldn't, you couldn't carry all your sacrifices with you. You would risk losing the animals or them dying on the way. And so people, when, when the pilgrims got to Jerusalem, they would buy the animals there. And they needed certain tax, or they had to pay a certain temple tax, and so they had to exchange money. So none of, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of, that was part of worshiping at the temple. And it's not that there's corruption going on. Uh, that might, nobody's being taken advantage of. I mean, that might have been happening, but it's not what Jesus brings up. What makes Jesus mad is that all of this is happening in the temple, in the temple courts that instead of worship, these shopkeepers have set, up, have set up in the temple. They've set up in the temple. And what's happening is worship has turned into commerce. So instead of prayer, instead of the voices of prayer, instead of the solemn silence of prayer, what you hear is the bleeding of sheep and the cooing of pigeons. You hear the clink of the money changers. So you can imagine trying to go into this temple, into these temple courts to worship, and what this probably is... In Jesus' day, you had the sanctuary, the sanctuary, you had the sanctuary where only the priest could go. That was the Holy of Holies. And then outside of that was the court of the Jews. So if you were a male and a Jew, you could go there. 
And then outside of that was the court of the women. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could go there. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. And that was where you had to stop. If you and I were living in that day and were a God-fearer and wanted to worship the, the God of the Jews, we couldn't go any further than that outer court. And what is likely happening is that merchants have just decided to set up shop under the, under the authority of the religious leaders. They've just set up shop in the, in the court of the Gentiles. So that means that you and I couldn't worship, right? That we, or we would have to find some space among all of the different booths and the money changers, maybe push a cow out of the way, right? That that's where we would have to worship, okay? And so Jesus sees that and he's angry. He's angry that people cannot meet with God He's angry that people cannot worship because of these money changers. And so what does he do? He cleans house, right? He ties a whip together and he starts driving everybody out of the temple. He turns over the tables. He chases out the bird sellers. And here's why. And this is what, this is what Jesus' cleaning house shows us. It shows us what God really cares about. And what God really cares about is worship. It says his disciples remembered that it was written, and this is a quotation from Psalm 69, that zeal for your house will consume me, that Jesus Jesus has a fervent passion for the worship of God. And when he sees that other people do not share that fervent passion or that somehow this machinery of worship, just getting people into the temple, is overwhelming the actual worship itself, it angers him. Imagine... Imagine going, let's go back to our illustration about going to your grandparents' house for Christmas. Imagine if you went to their house for Christmas and you took your grandparents and you just put them in a back room. You just put them in the back room and you locked them up and said, hey, we're going to be here for the week. We'll let you know when we leave and we'll let you out. That's in essence what's happening in the temple, that the people have, the people have pushed God away and have said, hey, we're here for our own purposes. We're here for our own ends. We're just going to kind of go through the motions of worship, and that makes Jesus angry. God cares about, God cares that he has our hearts, and he cares that he has our worship. And Jesus is mad because that isn't happening. See, the problem that you and I have is that we, we come to worship, and how this applies to us today we try to insulate ourselves from experiencing worship any way we can. And so here's what that looks like. We come to church, and what we really want, we don't really want to see or experience God's dangerous beauty. No, what we really want is just kind of a good conscience. We want to leave here having just kind of feeling a little bit better about ourselves. And so, you know, we'll pray, we'll close our eyes at the right moment, we'll sing the right words, we'll put some, put some dollars in the offering plate, we'll listen to the guy up front drone on and on for about 30 minutes, and then we can leave and we can feel better about ourselves. When what we're really excited about, the beauty that we really want to behold, is Alabama football, or the golf course, or whatever, or your family. Right, that what we're really excited about, the beauty that we really want to behold, is something else altogether. And what we do is we insulate ourselves from true and genuine worship. That we actually end up staying away from God. We do just enough to keep him at arm's length. And that's what Jesus sees happening. And that's called idolatry. 
What we do is we trade down the greater glory of God for lesser glories. That's what's happening in the temple. That's what Jesus is angry about. Because he's God in the flesh. And so he cleans house, he cleans up God's house to show us that that's what matters to God. But then he takes it a step further. Jesus gets angry, he cleans the house. So now it's the Jewish leader's turn to be angry. Verse 18, they come to him and they say, What sign do you show us for doing these things? All right, so what Jesus has done is he's basically shut the temple down, which is kind of a big deal since it's a major feast day. It's kind of like shutting the stadium down and locking the doors on game day. Okay, the temple is not functioning, which means people can't offer sacrifices, which means everything kind of comes to a halt. And so these guys are in charge of the temple. They want to know what's going on. And so they come to Jesus and they say, who do you think you are? Give us, give us some kind of sign that shows us your authority to do this stuff. Ironically, he just had given them a sign. He cleansed the temple. Um, and so here's what Jesus says, and it's really mysterious, and it really confuses them. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign he's going to show them. That's how he answers them. And they're, and they're understandably confused. They don't get it. Because in their day, right, built, well, kind of like in our day, um, buildings like, you know, expanding the interstate in the state of Alabama takes forever, right? It took a long time to build a good building. Forty-six years it took, it was taking to build this temple, okay? And so they're confused. They challenge him. They say, wait a second. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you say, you're going to raise it up. You're going to raise up a new temple. You've heard of house raising, right? You're going to raise a new house in three days. And here's what Jesus is saying. I am the new temple, right? Not only does Jesus cleanse, not only does he clean house to show us what really matters to God, but then he comes up and he says that he is going to raise a new house to replace the old one. He is the replacement temple. And so his disciples, they hear this, and they're, they're confused as well. And it's not until after the resurrection, it's not until after they see Jesus raised from the dead that they realize what he meant. That the sign that Jesus was going to use to declare his ultimate authority, his ultimate authority as God, um, who has the power over life and death, the owner of the house, is the sign of him conquering death by coming back to life. So here's what Jesus is saying when he says this. He, he's basically saying, this old house is done. This system of worship, it doesn't work anymore. These sacrifices that you're offering, you won't need them. This is over. This is no longer, this temple is no longer God's space. I am. I am God's space. I will be the new temple. I am where humans can experience the dangerous beauty of God's glory because I'm the ultimate sacrifice. 
I'm the one that clears the way to bring you into the presence of God. More than that, I'm God in the flesh. I am what the glory of God looks like on earth. That's what Jesus is saying. And here's what that means for us. That if you want to experience the power and presence of God, you don't have to look anywhere else. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to worship anyone else. You don't have to do any other religious thing. Because the power and presence of God is uniquely found in Jesus Christ. And all that will be required going forward is trust in Him. Relying on Him. He is the one who ushers us in to God's presence. But here's what that also means for us. If you're a, if you're a Christian this morning, you, you've probably no doubt heard in the Corinthian letters where Paul talks about, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? When Paul says that, he's not talking about your diet He's not talking about tattoos. He's not talking about smoking. He's not saying, you've got to take care of your body because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he means. What he's saying is, is this, that for, the, that for the church going forward, we are God's space. That no longer on this world will there be one location where you can meet God. That was true in the Old Testament. Everybody who wanted to meet God had to come to Jerusalem. They had to come to the temple, and they had to offer sacrifice there. From the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection going forward, the temple is wherever Jesus' people are. That you, if you are connected to Jesus, are the new temple. That you replace the Old Testament temple. That Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the beginning of the foundation. And the rest of us, when we're built onto Him, we are God's space in the world. We are the place where people can actually meet and experience God's glory. Does that feel like truth to you? Have you ever considered that about yourself? That if you are connected to Jesus, you are the temple. Because He is the temple. You're in the temple, and so you, right now... The very thing that Adam and Eve were supposed to do, fill the earth with God's glory, that happens in the church. It's happening right now, all over the world. That where people are believing in Jesus, the temple grows. The temple builds. God's glory goes forth. That's what we are to be about. That's who we are because of Jesus. And that's non-Christian. That's what you're meant to experience. Right? There... There are lots of religious options out there for you. And all of them offer various things. That if you do this, you will receive this. But nobody makes a promise like Jesus. Nobody says, if you meet me, if you know me, you know God. Right? Think about every other great religious teacher. Every other great religious teacher that you can think of across the world. What they offer is, if you follow my teachings, if you do what I say, you will experience God. You will experience inner peace, whatever the, whatever the offer is. No one in the history of the world has said what Jesus says. What he says right here, that if you want to meet God, then you just have to come to me. And you have to be 
grafted into me. That's what Jesus offers when he says that he is the new temple. He is the place where heaven's doors are finally opened and joy pours out. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is our temple. He is our meeting place. That all of the sacred space in the world does not hold the glory of God the way that Jesus does, the way that Jesus reveals it. Oh Lord, I pray that we would believe, just as these disciples did, that when they remembered what Jesus said, they believed the Scriptures, they believed the truth, and they had life in His name. I pray that would be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.